Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Hi, it's 19th of December 2022. Uh, Visegrad Inside podcast hosted uh, today by Miles Maftian, editorial director, and myself, Wojciech Przybylski, editor in chief. We're discussing uh, the pressing political events uh, and developments that are concerning Central Europe and Europe overall along with its democratic security. We have uh, turbulent times in Slovakia as the government fell down, but probably will uh, not, uh, will will stay in power for long, as long as it takes. Uh, president expects that it will stay in power at least until the end of January. And um, it can, uh, the issue can be resolved only if uh, there will be new elections which require a majority for uh, constitutional amendment where there is no majority for that solution. Uh, there would be a clear majority in support of the existing government where there is no majority for the existing go- government or there would be um, a, a, a government appointed, a technical government appointed and constructed by by non-partisan actors, um, uh, which uh, President Chaputova would nominate, which uh, also doesn't seem to have a a clear majority in in the parliament. So um, I think all of that will be discussed further by, um, among others, uh, Albin Sibera in the second part of the podcast, uh, our foresight editor. But... um, Let's focus on one uh, item that actually is not considered, uh, this doesn't concern only Slovakia. That is how likely Central uh, Europe uh, will will face a return or a rise of a pro-Russian political forces. Because in the context of the situation, naturally, uh, there are political forces just uh, waiting to come back and they're interestingly waving the Russian flag. So how prevalent that is, uh, not in Slovakia only, but, but across Central Europe. Uh, Miles, uh, where, which directions would you point at? Well, following what we were discussing, the post-Schengen vote, we talked a little bit about kind of the repercussions that would happen against Austria, right, from the Bulgarian and the Romanian side. But Interestingly, what's kind of happening right now, you have this uh, right-wing party and right-wing government in in Bulgaria that essentially is already kind of leaning more pro-Russian at this point. There's a lot of pro-Russian sentiments and a lot of pro-Russian narratives that are popping up when you look at the sort of disinformation bubbles and so forth. This escalated intensely over the last week, week and a half. So this is obviously one element that we didn't necessarily think so much about. Um, and it's it's an incredibly difficult position that we find ourselves in because you have what's happening here in Bulgaria, but then you move on to things that are actually happening in Hungary and even to a certain extent in Poland um, that you know often you get this feeling that is is something shifting, is something turning. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very important to see uh, to take a, a 
broader look and take a step back from the ongoing political turmoil and crisis and, and look back at the past year in which Central Europe all of a sudden, and thanks, much thanks to the Baltics, uh, but also many countries across the region, have, uh, have, have shaken off any suspicion of being pro-Russian. And basically, I told you so attitude from Poland has been uh, accepted and um, and also acclaimed by uh, by Ursula von der Leyen in her speech in September on State of the Union um, address. And that has been building the identity of Central Europe. But we should not forget that certain moves, political moves, driven by various factors, are oftentimes playing into the Russian hands more than more so than than we would ever wish and want so, especially coming from this region. So let's enumerate. Bulgaria is definitely one. We mentioned Slovakia, and there is a Mr. Fico, former prime minister, who wants to come back despite there is a dark shadow of uh, corruption and maybe even criminal activity um, behind him. There is... Um, uh, and, and the investigation is still ongoing. Uh, one has been dropped, the other one is in the, in the process. Uh, then uh, he is organizing the pro-Russian rallies uh, to mobilize his supporters. So clearly there is this, uh, uh, the, 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 the Kremlin shadow uh, also, not just mafia shadow behind him. There, is, um, there was the veto that was eventually dropped by Mr. Orban related to 18 billion uh, euro support to Ukraine, then that, of course, Hungarians explain differently. Right. And they say this is because they are defending their vital national interests. But it plays into the hands. I mean, you cannot you cannot miss that. It, it plays into the hands of their uh, major partners, international partners, Russia. However, at the same time, Hungarian government has adopted a law that uh, allows for confiscation of, uh, of Russian assets, uh, of Russian uh, properties. Uh, yeah, there's almost this teeter-totter so, sort of thing. So we don't know. So we don't know. But, mm -hmm. it, but more often than so, Hungary has been there. And then there was this uh, hour or so long moment when the Polish government nearly ruined all of its reputation during the last uh, uh, summit, the European summit on Thursday night. Uh, nearly ended with our consensus on the 18 billion because Poland all of a sudden wanted to veto it over another case because it was packaged with several other changes, including the taxation, the minimal tax uh, that Poland want, wanted to oppose, it said, but it, in fact it looked like it was opposing it on the grounds of haggling or the, you know, the, the tough negotiations with the EU Commission on the rule of law. And, and nevertheless, I mean, it, it, backed, it backed down, it won nothing and, and lost everything or nearly everything uh, in terms of reputation. I mean, I'm not sure this government is capable of losing any more reputation uh, for, for which you need to have one in the first place. Uh, and then we have Czech, uh, yeah. Czech elections coming up which definitely are seeing the uh, president, uh, President Zeman, uh, as an outgoing president, being the most pro-Russian president, probably, of, of all Central European uh, presidents of states. 
but we may be just facing Mr. Babish, um, who is being accused of having similar uh, sympathies, or uh, you know, um, maybe maybe just choosing uh, similarly uh, to his predecessor if he is elected. Um, a, a path of, of a certain dependency or uh, pragmatic uh, approach, let's call it, uh, towards doing business as usual rather than standing on the, on the, on the matters of, of, of principle vis-a-vis -vis Russia and, and Ukraine. So Central Europe is actually uh, not such, not, not, not the shining armor knight currently, it, it, it's, it, it got some mud on its uh, Armored chest in that respect. Yeah, but you know the thing is, is that you <clears throat> you take that and you couple it together with the news from from this past week, which is that the EU passed its ninth round of sanctions, right? Correct, so, and that was much uh, pressure. There was much pressure from Poland and Lithuania exactly to have those sanctions in place, and they are actually pushing for the gas cap, the the cap on the energy prices. Uh, which would limit the prices of gas, limit the inflation, uh, limit the incomes of the Russian state budget. However, it would probably also limit the availability of strategic resource of gas mm -hmm. from international suppliers, uh, which is feared by the European Central Bank, among others. Yeah, and, and, and others. we're going to have a, a longer piece by Bogdan Beranatsky this week regarding this, but the idea there it did target the security sector in some way, shape or form, because I know that it looked, it looked at targeting these entities that could provide, you know, these um, certain chemicals or nerve agents, night vision goggles, um, radio navigation equipment. So it also kind of calls into question sort of the, how Russia will technologically advance right how it will enhance it and at the same time we are reading from all over the places reports of how russia does indeed try to bypass it uh, there are some reports uh, that recall uh, kgb t section from the cold war times that mm -hmm. has been revived the t section of kgb has been uh, meant to support uh, soviets with with uh, western made technologies Basically, as, through espionage and you know, stealing right. copyrights. So I think this this is very much in, in place, and this is even more so how important it is that we uh, not only install sanctions, but uh, make sure that we know what we're doing with technology and and, and, and copyrights. And there is a there is a hands-on approach in in terms of security, not just from the security sector, but but overall from the business. And from the uh, in, basically, you know, academic and think tank sector, yeah. which is which is so crit uh, critical and crucial. And one thing I wanted to to also add, which which we put in the weekly outlook, is is the story from Poland again, um, that is about uh, selling the 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 contract between um, Poland and Aramco Saudi Arabia. A company that sells 30% of shares of the um, of the Lotus oil refinery, the second biggest in Poland, uh, to Pekin Orlen, and now going to be dwarfed uh, for uh, extremely small amount of, of, of money uh, that puts uh, strategic veto rights in the hands of Aramco, 
despite they're buying only 30% of shares. Also um, gives them 50% of profits of the company mm-hmm. and uh, puts a burden of um, half a billion US dollars of um, contractual uh, penalties should Poland uh, withdraw or, or you know, violate in any sense the, uh, the agreement regarding oil deliveries. And it's all in the name of uh, the biggest petroleum company Again, Orlen in Poland, also government-owned, uh, fulfilling its dream of monopoly, and at the same time playing the Russian playbook, and at the same time not uh, not showing any any legal documents that would uh, uh, guarantee that they have that there is due diligence process. In, in, there was a due diligence process, and there is a there was a preparation against a potential uh, Russian takeover or Russian dependent takeover of, of, the, of the key assets, energy assets in Poland. So this is this is a big story, explosive story right now in Poland as of this weekend. Um, and I think it also shows that this shadow of Russian influence and money in energy sector and in today's politics, it's very, very long. I'll quickly wrap up what happened yesterday for perhaps those of you who haven't had a chance to follow as closely. But as most of you have heard, and as Wojciech already said, uh, the Slovak cabinet uh, received a no confidence vote. It, it was toppled. And during the day, there was there was a quite a spectacular and, and dramatic uh, turn of events. First, with the Slovak finance minister actually stepping in and saying he will resign, which was an effort to, to avert the no-confidence motion as it was the animosity between the Slovak finance minister and his former coalition colleague, uh, energy minister, Richard Sulik of the, of, uh, of a right-wing SIS party, which initiated the motion and which a uh, couple of months before actually instigated the whole protracted coalition crisis in Slovakia. However, what happened is that, uh, Richard Sulik turned out the, the offer. He instead said that the no confidence uh, motion is unavoidable. And even before it happened, there was another uh, spectacular turn of events with a, finance, a Slovak finance minister uh, uh, ushering quickly to uh, the presidential palace to hand in his resignation. And where, according to the account from the from the office of the president, of the president herself, who actually published a whole uh, uh, set of events on her Facebook profile, uh, Igor Matovich signed his resignation but at the last possible moment, he took the papers back and left the office. So as a, as a, as a consequence of that, the no confidence motion went ahead. Uh, the the deputy there were 78 deputies, which which is a, which is a majority in the in the parliament of 150 in Bratislava. And Edward Hager's prime minister Edward Hager's cabinet was toppled. Uh, just as we speak, uh, the the Slovak president is dismissing the cabinet which means that the parliament will actually enter this sort of a uh, constitutional and a legislative limbo as uh, as uh, 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 first of all the, the budget has not been approved a number of uh, uh, legislation pertaining uh, needed for for to address the energy crisis has not been approved either and most importantly for the early elections to actually take place it would be that there would be a change of legislation 
uh, needed, which would require a constitutional majority of 90 deputies. So the whole situation in the Slovak parliament is uh, is uh, is uh, in for a protracted crisis. And maybe allow me to make two points. This is all happening while there are high-profile corruption probes going on in the country. One concerning the, the ex-premier Robert Fico, who actually is um, not doing bad in the polls and, and might might want to see early elections take place, as it would give him a chance to uh, make his uh, astonishing comeback to the to the to the, to the government. And uh, and uh, another one concerns uh, the, the famous case for those of you following Central Europe of uh, of a Penta company boss who was uh, first uh, actually whose charges were dismissed at first this year, but a couple of a uh, few weeks ago he was charged again together with uh, several other high, high profile Slovak officials. And the last point to make: uh, this is also happening as Slovakia is preparing to and its uh, MiG-29 fleet to, to Ukraine, which numbers 11, 11 fighter jets. Alvin, I just have one or two small questions that I wanted to ask in response to this. So this is incredibly simplistic, but how bad actually is this? Well, that's a very good question, because uh, it may sound like a catastrophic scenario, but as I was trying to hint at, it's quite unclear whether we're actually going to see early elections. And if this is uh, not happening, we will most likely see the current parliament hinge on, or we might even see an attempt at restructuring of a coalition which would have a majority in the parliament. In other words, those uh, important events which are followed regionally and which are going on in the background of the crisis may not be affected that much, but at the same time, they could be affected as well, depending on what turn of events will the crisis take. And w- one last question. So we were talking a little bit, just you and I, and you were mentioning a constitutional crisis. So this this is one part that I didn't really quite get what you meant by this. So what what kind of crisis could actually unfold from that? Well, right, for, for actually for uh, early elections to take place, uh, there needs there need to be legislative changes, and for those legislative changes to take place, uh, you need to have a constitutional majority, which is uh, 90 deputies. And as we saw in the in the no confidence motion yesterday, there were 78 deputies back in uh, the no confidence motion. So looking at these numbers, uh, it might actually be quite difficult to to attain that 90 uh, deputy strong majority to make those legislative changes. Also, in light of the various uh, stakeholders having various interests in the, in early elections. Because when we look at the polls, as I was hinting at, the opposition parties of Robert Fitzgerald and Robert Pellegrini are the parties that are doing well in the polls. They're the parties who are in the opposition. They're the parties who have been undermining this cabinet for some time and who, who are eyeing a return to frontline politics. But at the same time, these two parties uh, are far from from far from from uh, coming anywhere near to constitutional majority. In fact, they are in minority. And uh, it was only thanks to the former coalition partner SAS, which has some 20 deputies. But don't take my word for it, because many deputies, individual deputies, are migrating amid the crisis. With some of them disagreeing with with what happened and. Uh, in other words, uh, it's just difficult to see how how parties that are not doing so well in the polls 
will be very much eager to support the Earl elections motion. So, as I said at the beginning, it it it, it seems to me that it, we might be witnessing this this political crisis or this drama to to actually linger on for a couple of months, if not for the remainder of the term. Thank you.